This isn't the BBC Light program. The Tony Hancock Appreciation Society presents Ooh, very nearly an armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. Hello and welcome to Very Nearly an Armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. We're your hosts. I'm James, a lifelong fan. I'm Martin Gibbons, President and Website Organiser of the Appreciation Society. I'm John Street, Digital Archivist and uh, Audio Librarian. And I'm Tim Elms, Membership Secretary, Archivist, and I run the Twitter accounts. We're spread across the UK in a line from Wiltshire to Essex via Kent. And our members are spread all over the world. We have members in all countries of the UK, Germany, Portugal, Ireland, Australia, United States, even Japan and Brazil. And early indications also tell us that our listeners are even further afield, from the Isle of Man to Japan, South Africa, Thailand and Canada. And this year marks the 60th anniversary of The Rebel, and it would be remiss of us not to have a bit of a deep dive into this hugely popular cult film. First of all, chaps, how have we all been? Quite an exciting week with our uh, teaser episodes for the podcast going live. It's quite good, isn't it? Got some very good feedback. Yeah, really interesting. Mm. And amazing how far up the charts we went on that very first teaser episode. Yeah, briefly up to number four, before plummeting back down to number ten. But thats um, I don't think any of us really expected that so early on in our, in our podcast careers. No, I don't, I don't think so. It's, uh, it's not nice to know that, that some people have enjoyed it and everything, and uh, we're learning as we go, as, it's, as uh, we're all a bit of a novices to it, aren't we? So, um, yes. Yeah, it's not been bad. I've had a very busy week with work's been busy and then I've been trying to sweat a mortgage and all of that stuff to buy a house. So that's keeping me somewhat busy. I've been spent most of yesterday looking at shelves. Exciting times. Oh, really? <laughs> Just don't buy a house on the cliff, John. <laughs> not on the cliff. Not have one, one three miles inland, you know, with the rail service going yeah. to and from just service. so you can yeah. get between the yeah. three houses, yeah. yeah and the escalator. Yeah. And I think you'd said you'd had uh, a bit of feedback, hadn't you? Yeah, as I was about to say, um, we've had some feedback from the podcast. We've got a few few questions. I think you guys are probably a lot uh, better equipped to answer these than I, than I am. So uh, Sergeant Arthur Wilson on Twitter asks, he's listened to the train turning and there's a very loud, distinctive male laugh. It sounds as it's put on and sarcastic. Is there a story behind this, behind this and uh, and the person responsible? Anyone idea? Well, I'm that? aware it's uh, it's something that's quite an annoyance to a lot of the audience of that particular episode. And in fact, I, I understand that some people have gone to the trouble of getting the soundtrack of it and editing out as much of that laugh or suppressing it as possible to to uh, enhance their enjoyment of it. But uh, I don't think I don't know. I don't know if we know who the person laughing is, or, or it's it's not. I don't, one, I don't it? think it's ever been found out. And until someone first mentioned this on Twitter. I must admit, I'd never thought of it as being an annoying, sarcastic laugh. I've always mm. thought of it as being someone who was too close to the mic, who's got one of these um, upper-class officer-type laughs. Um, mm. You know the characters that Kenneth Williams sometimes play when he plays the officer in The Unexploded Bomb? That It, it just seemed mm. to me that it was that sort of person rather than uh, a put-on or a sarcastic, yeah. And it was only when someone pointed it out on Twitter, yeah, I... Yeah, if memory serves me correctly, it's it's very much a ha 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 yeah, yeah, type of yeah, thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's yeah. very distinctive, and it's yeah. I I've got a feeling it might have been John. Yeah, was it you, John? Oh, yeah, it's John. 
<laughs> Contrary to appearances, I wasn't around in 1956 when that was recorded, or 58, whenever that one was. And the least we can do is to keep quiet. <laughs> Good luck to you, mate. You carry on. Well, one one name that did did spring to mind for me was Alec Bergonzi, whether it was because he sort of um, has got that uh, quite sort of posh, and he would have been at recordings, and he was certainly there earlier in the series because he did the uh, didn't he do the walkthroughs on in the dress rehearsals and stuff for Hancock in mm. in, in the bedsitter. So he's the sort of person who might have been there. And indeed, fairly near the front, near the microphone. Possibly, possibly. Mm. I mean, it, 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 I don't suppose it was a member of the crew who was uh, was laughing and cl- too close to a, a, an unnoticed microphone, because I'm sure that uh, the studio manager or whoever would have been in charge would have mm. stopped it very quickly. But we, we there's, they have form yeah. with that. It's like in the radio series, the shrieking woman in the insurance policy, isn't it? You know? Yes, I was going to say. Yeah. Yes, that's I mean, uh, Freddie Ross, I mean, isn't it? Or, no, no, I don't think um, Freddie Ross. Who is no, it? I think, it? Oh, it's... Well, in my view, it's um, someone on the four reckoned that it was um, Beryl Virtue, but I, Beryl, I don't think... That's what I was thinking I don't think it, I don't think it is. I, Beryl Virtue was mm. a professional. She wouldn't... No way would she sit there and potentially ruin a programme. It was a mandarin's daughter. I was young, and the smell of the orange blossoms in the scented air. We had 15 kids in no time. <laughs> I think it's an audience member off the street um, who was unfortunately placed too close to the microphone. Mm. Um, Or had had too many uh, gins at lunchtime, one of those. Possibly, possibly. (laughs) If anyone's got any ideas or anything, uh, any inside info, we'd love to hear it. Absolutely, yeah. Finally put that mystery to We certainly would. Mm. Um, and then Ben Schott has also got in touch and asked us, um, is there any good information on how the stuttering Hancock's Half Hour came about? Hancock's Half Hour. And he'd like to know a bit more detail about the development of the theme tune, the incidental music theme spin-offs. Mm. The stuttering was Dennis Main Wilson, wasn't it, chaps? It was his idea. He said to Hancock, I think, I read mm. somewhere, about doing it with a, a, hes- a hesitate. He didn't... He didn't call it a stutter. Mm. I think it was a hesitant stop. I, um, I'm sure it's uh, mentioned in the script as sort of breathy or excited, yes, isn't it? It's, yes, <gasps> that's right. Hancock's half hour. Is, all excited, yes. kind of. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. This thing is bigger than both of us. <sighs> Life is just a desert without you. <sighs> it, it, it certainly came from it certainly came from Dennis Main Wilson, and I think the music was Dennis Main Wilson as well, because I think originally he'd asked Stanley Black. Stanley Black couldn't do it, and then approached Wally Stott, who I think had just taken over doing the music on The Goon Show at the time. Something and, like that. Uh, something like that. And I think Dennis Main Wilson, um, Wally Stott hadn't met Tony, uh, so Dennis Main Wilson did an, uh, an impression of Tony, gave mm. Wally Stott an idea of what the series was about, and the music... Uh, Wally put together the opening and closing, plus all of the, sort of the musical stings in the in the episodes, based on that impression that Dennis did. Um, mm. at, at the, yes, um, of the and it was only a few days before, sort of tuba thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. I think it was only a few days before the first episode was recorded that the the music was written and recorded. So so very late in the day. Writing the theme, which was that uh, tuba theme, I hadn't met Tony Hancock before I wrote that theme, and in fact, I'd never heard. 
Tony Hancock perform. The producer, Dennis Mayne Wilson, came over and he did an impersonation of, of Hancock's voice and his style and everything. Hancock's half hour. And I based it on Dennis Mayne Wilson, really. In, in fact, the, the main theme is based on a film score that um, stopped it earlier. I can't remember the name of the film offhand, but oh, the, the, really? there was a film, and the film is available on YouTube. And if you go to the very end of it and listen to the theme come up at the end, you could recognise it as being the Hancock theme. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, and we, we, this came up on Twitter a while ago. And I, I, sorry, I can't for the life of me remember the title of the film, but um, anyone who goes back through my Twitter feed will probably find it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's oh, interesting. One to look up there, mm. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. Bear in mind, he, he did, did all this in a day, you know, because Stanley Black, as Martin said, sort of, uh, he went sick at the last moment. The shows were from different locales uh, every week. So I uh, composed a selection of little bits of linking music that could be useful in various situations. Well, what Wally Stott um, obviously later became Angela Morley and did it in that drama about her life. There was, uh, I think it was, she was contracted to do Watership Down or something at the 11th hour again, so was very much mm. known for being able to rush mm. in there and do something quickly, quite good, at the last minute, to a, a deadline, you know. They weren't tailor-made to any particular script, uh, you see, or to any particular scene. We just wrote little pieces to suit as many different moods as we could think of. She had a fantastic mm. career, didn't she, when you look at yeah. all, all the things that she did. She did, did the Muppets did some as well. on Star Wars or something, as well yeah. as the Muppets, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. Right. All sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, fantastic. And then... After a couple of series, they indicated they really need some, needed some new cues. So I wrote a lot more. And uh, I suppose, you know, the thing is as well, of course, there were lots of different little bits of stings that were recorded as well, you know, with lovely, lovely names like Hancock on the Prowl, Haunted Housecock, uh, Falling Downstairs, Back to Tony's, Time and Movement Through Town, all of those lovely names. Mm. And I, I, I've managed to work out from the scripts which each of them each of the musical stings is described as, because those names were obviously added. To How many are there, John? Uh, about 25, 30, something like that. And there's some that are variations on... Uh, were, were they the all theme. on gramophone when they used them in the studio? I believe so, yeah. I mean, I, I understand that the original music and links still exists because they did inquire about using it in the Missing Hancocks, but the quality of the recording would clash with the nice pristine quality of, of modern BBC microphones so they elected just to, to redo it and it might be the tapes are in a shocking state but I understand it, it still exists or some of it still exists certainly the main theme must somewhere and of course they did re-record um, all of the opening and closing and they the did. stings for the, the, the later radio series um, so it's the sort of two versions of, of mm. all of that uh, used across the series with slight variation, and I imagine all the originals were ceremonially destroyed so that they wouldn't be used again as uh, at request of the musicians' union, probably. <laughs> I mean, there was a big strike, wasn't there? Well, there were several strikes over the, um, the sort of mm. 60s, 70s and 80s in terms of musicians and BBC. I was watching something a completely unrelated TV programme. Mm. I think it's something to do with Top of the Pops in 1970 or something. About, uh, probably. There used to be an orchestra in... Uh, in um, who would perform at Top of the Pops for certain songs that required an orchestra. And uh, they uh, all went on this big strike, uh, I think. Well, there's, there's several strikes. They stopped um, broadcasting Top of the Pops for about eight, nine weeks, I think, for 
a little bit later on anyway. Ah, so yeah, these things often happen. There was various strikes there where, you know, colour the colour technicians would go on strike or the electricians and therefore television would be black and white for a couple of weeks in the seventies on ITV and things like that, weren't there? So happened a lot back in the day. And the time of the power cuts as well. And lots mm. of those in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't think John and James remember those. Don't think they do. No, I, I, I was a little bit before my time. A little bit before my time. Just a smidge. Just, just a touch, yeah, same here. So, on to our subject, The Rebel. Now, 60 years ago, audiences were queuing up outside cinemas to see Hancock's first starring role in a film. It was his first major role. Of course, he'd made Orders or Orders before this, but that was uh, quite a long time ago. It was before Hancock's Half Hour was a thing. This was very much sort of the culmination of his work with, with Galton and Simpson, basically, wasn't it? Not intentional at the time, of course. One of the things I was going to say, listening to the uh, commentary from Galton and Simpson, Tony wanted to be involved in the sort of the planning meeting for the writing of it. Um, and then, as a result, he got a, a credit on it where he didn't really write a single line of it, but was sort of vaguely involved in the planning. And I think the whole thing was set out as based on a, an original idea by Tony Hancock, Alan Simpson and Ray Gorton. But as you say, sort of the idea came from Ray and Alan and then I think Tony helped flesh it out with them. Yeah, they sat down together and went through the basic plot of it, didn't they? Then he left I them think so. to get on with it. But this actually is very, this chimes very well with what Hancock was doing generally because one of his grouses with the BBC was that he didn't have a lot of control over it. And he saw, particularly from successful stars in America, that they had control over their work. And that's what he wanted. And that's eventually what he got from ITV a bit later down the road. But I think, and, and indeed with the Punch and Judy Man, which he used his own money to finance. So you could see how he was thinking in that way, even though in The Rebel, um, you know, it was, it was only in a fairly minor capacity that he had any control. Was there any inspiration for, behind the storyline at all? Was it something that's been bubbling away by sort of Galton and Simpson or, or, or the writers um, in general? Or oh, I think so. Something that's planned. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's very similar in, in tone, isn't it, to the Poetry Society? Steel rods of reason through my head. Salmon jumping where jump I? <laughs> Camels on fire and spotted clouds. Striped horses prance the meadow wild and rush on to drink at life's fountains deep. Life is cream. I am puce ching chang chola. Uh, in terms of the kind of the ridicule of the, the arts world in a sense, but, but also the wonderful parody of it that, that there was and, and Tony not fitting in with that whatsoever, um, but trying desperately to be part of that crowd. And and the similar thing, I think, was with the second ever TV episode was about Tony being discovered as, a, as an artist, but he wasn't. It's just that he had an old canvas that was a Rembrandt that he painted over. And uh, as, as someone was, wanted to get hold of the stolen Rembrandt, they kept buying up his work. So it's it's a theme that sort of goes through a few different episodes, doesn't it? And, and there was Mike, Michelangelo Hancock when he did the sculpture, of course, which uh, um, of course. would be a forerunner to Af Aphrodite. Hey, um, uh, how's it going, Tub? Happy. Not very well. I started off by doing horse and rider. I knocked his head off by mistake, so I'm, ca I'm calling it horse now. Yeah, well, those, those, those sounds, clips of him ch chiseling away. Yeah, yeah. Just so funny. Mm. Until another bit drops off. 
In fact, Gordon and Simpson didn't actually set out to take the Mickey out of the art movement. They they were saying. Um, I mean, although we, it's generally regarded as that and a bit of a satire on the modern art movement at that time. They said that that wasn't actually their intention when when they set out to do it. They were just trying to put their character in in this situation where an idiot is hailed as a genius. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that's. I think. I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Am I right in saying it was largely favourable reviews in the UK rather than in America? They didn't quite get it. You got a good review in the Times, but that's about it. But the biggest, uh, best review came from the fans, and, and it was the fans who queued up outside cinemas. They didn't give a damn what the uh, people in the press said, and because Hancock was just so well loved at that time by you know huge, huge popularity, biggest star in the country. It's a bit like his stage shows, really. He could have done anything and got away with it. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a box office smash, and it outperformed both the big carry-on films that were out that year as well. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, there were two carry-ons, carry-on Constable and carry-on Regardless, and the Rebel outperformed both of them at the box office. So the, I can't remember what they're called, the film company that he signed up with were, were very pleased. Nominated for a BAFTA for it as well. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, as you say, it was... Um, not so well received in America. Of course, it had the awful title of Call Me Genius because yes, there was a, really uh, an American good, television it? show called The Rebel on at the time. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think because Tony wasn't well known and the audiences wouldn't have been familiar with the character, the title really didn't help sell the picture at all over there. I know he was yeah. bitterly disappointed with that because he wanted this to be his first step on mm. international film stardom. Yeah, and it's got it's got a you know it, it doesn't just take place in gloomy England, no. you know it's in France, and he was a massive big fan of France. He used to go to holiday in France all the time, and occasionally would disappear to there. I think that's what happened at the beginning of the second radio show. So it was filmed on location. Then. The set the setting in France was great for an international film, wasn't it? Set yeah. in Monte Carlo and Paris and all that sort of thing. It just makes you wonder whether it got the right promotion over there or not. Because we, we actually saw the trailer recently, didn't we, Martin? Do you remember someone gave us the, yes. a copy of the American trailer for the film? Mm. And Martin wrote a little article in our magazine, The Missing Page, about it recently. You're all raving mad! None of you know what you're looking at! What you're looking at is the most delightfully wacky, wonderfully hilarious comedy idea in years. And I remember in that article, Martin, you said, you know, well, and that's it. You know, it was just... Um, Meet Hancock the artist, kindred soul to all genius. It was it was very short and very to the point. It, it bore no... I, I know, obviously, things are very different these days, but it bore no relation to a modern-day trailer for a film, did it? It didn't seem to be selling Not it at all. At all. It, it didn't try and sell yeah. it. And yeah. if you hadn't known who Tony was, yeah. it, you, yeah. it wouldn't have encouraged you to go to, no. to see it at all. If I'd have seen that in a cinema one week, I wouldn't have gone back. I imagine the British cut of the trailer was possibly a little bit better and it more reliant on Tony and his skills and the, the fan base that already existed for him than the American one. A longing to release the raging fires within... This is the man you see before you. Hancock the Rebel. Hancock the Creator. It was very Tony heavy, wasn't it? The uh, it was sort of the I was watching the uh, the advert for it on YouTube this evening. Here was an artist with a soul who sought escape and appreciation, and in Paris, that city of beauty and culture, he found it. Oh, obviously, it's dated. It's quite heavily dated, but mm. it's very much relying on. Look, it's Tony Hancock. I felt yeah. in the yeah. uh, trailer. 
they, they didn't need to sell it here no. in the same way they needed to sell it in America. Yeah. And of course, the character in the film is absolutely, as we start the film, it's an extension of the, yeah. the yeah. Tony Hancock from, from Railway Cuttings. It yeah. is. It's it's like a slightly more middle class version of the Tony Hancock from Railway Cuttings, upper middle class sort of level. He's got a, a good job as a you know a clerk in, in an office. And it starts very in a strange way, doesn't it, with the, the opening monologue. It's a very unusual start to it, I, I felt. Journey number 6,833. 8.32, arriving Waterloo, 8.53, accepting bank holidays, religious festivals, Saturday mornings and strikes. Tony on the, in the train cab, looking at all the other passengers and going, look at him, you know. Coy, you'll be still on this train in 1980. Um, things like that. Don't you believe it, mate. If this train is running in 1980, you'll still be on it. Does anyone else look at that and think of Reggie Perrin? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. know Reggie Perrin quite so well, right. But, right. but yeah, I yeah. imagine it's, it's sort of similar maybe, yeah. I, I wonder whether David Nobbs, well, he probably had seen The Rebel or, or whether it was in the back of his mind. I'm not, I'm not saying it inspired him, but I think it, it may have had something to do with it. That internal monologue feels quite forward-thinking for sort of 1961. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. I, I just, I just love the ending line where he actually says out loud, out loud. He says out loud, "Where are we going? <sighs> What's it all for? What's the purpose of it all? What are we doing it for? Where are we going? Where are we going? Waterloo." Yes. Because everybody look, and yeah. uh, Hugh Lloyd looks up and says, "Waterloo, Waterloo, <laughs> Waterloo. Where, are, where else are we going to be going?" It feels a little bit Peep Show esque. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's watched Peep mm, Show. It does. But, um, yeah. it does. And of course, in the opening scene there of him on the train platform, you can see the difference on the restored version, how yeah. much yeah. more colourful and crisp and the mm. aspect ratio is right. We highly recommend you get the network restoration of The Rebel because it's it's really undergone a, a lot of work and looks fantastic mm. on a massive screen these days. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. And uh, I think some of us were fortunate to be able to go and see the premiere of the uh, restored version um, in uh, cinema in, in the West End just before it came out on DVD and Blu-ray, of course. Um, but yeah, fantastic, um, uh, fantastic colours in the new version. When did it come out? Was it 2019? Was it quite recently? I believe so, yeah. The premiere was on the 23rd of September 2019, so it would have been yeah. around about then. Yeah. Just that sort of time. That's right. Mm. I was going to say that train sequence, though, um, with him standing on the opposite platform and, and nipping across from, from one train to the other. Brilliant idea. Um, was just a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a great little visual gag to open yeah. with, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is a great gag. I used to commute to London for 40 years. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> oh, if only. Of course, the, um, the station's gone now. And I think yeah. it was called, what was it called? Fortune Green South in the film. Um, but the actual station was Bingham Road, which was on the old um, uh, Woodside and Croydon Railway. And I think I think it closed um, soon after the film, 1963. It's amazing how much has changed in 60 years, but that sort of still that commute to work that everyone looking a little bit jaded before they go in and going into the office and doing the same monotonous mm. task and coming home still exists. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, before when when it still existed, before it was case well, of you yeah. just look jaded sitting at a, a a desk in your spare room or, or <laughs> yeah. in your bedroom or whatever with a laptop doing work that away. Yeah, that's true. And of course, you get some lovely cameos from people like Hugh Lloyd, and then you know as as we move into the office, you've got the the wonderful John Lemessurier. I mean, I remind you, this is a business house, not a Benedictine monastery. How long did this rubbish take you? Only two or three hours. Two or three hours. It's pretty, though, isn't it? You think Smith, Brown, Warner and Brown are going to pay us more because we send them pretty accounts? Well, surely there's a place for art, even in a business house. The only art I'm concerned with is the art of making money. 
uh, one of Tony's besties as as well. So it's, it's nice to have that sort of East Chin rep around, isn't it? Yeah, what's great about this film is that it's got a combination of top world-class actors and Hancock's mm. mates. And, um, you know, particularly at the start of the film, when you've got sort of Hugh Lloyd and John Lemez and actors like that and, and Liz Fraser in, in the coffee bar, you know, it's got a real Hancock's half-hour feel about it, hasn't it? That's right. And Mrs. Cravat. It's all a load of miscellaneous rubbish. And Mario Fabrizzi as well. Yes, and until it, until he gets on the ferry to Calais, it's very much, um, you know, railway cuttings, isn't it? Oh, very much so, very much so. Mm. Yeah, and I, I suppose if you're talking through sort of the different scenes in the film, there's a lot of lovely visual jokes there with uh, the artwork that was done by... Who was mm. the artist again? Alastair Grant. Alastair Grant, that's the chap, yeah. And uh, some of those paintings still exist. I think we we, we uh, encountered, or someone encountered, the chap who allegedly owns the self-portrait of Laura Nardi um, at one of the reunion events or at a, a, an event somewhere in Birmingham. What's this horrible thing? That is a self-portrait. Who of? Laura Nardi! Who of? Buffoon. There's quite a good story behind the paintings um, because Galton and Simpson said they had been destroyed at the end of the film. John Fisher in a biography says they've been destroyed at the end of the film. And then the Pataphysical Society recreated the paintings for an exhibition in 2000 something. When they did it, they started from scratch because the originals weren't available because they'd been destroyed. And then lo and behold, an eagle-eyed member of the society spotted one of the pictures on the wall in a 1970s TV programme, which started everyone saying, well, were they binned or were they not? And then, of mm. course, someone turned up at the um, Hancock uh, 50 set of, uh, commemoration with this copy of the self-portrait. So it's possible that they weren't binned in 1961 or that some of them weren't binned. They were cert- yeah, they some of them the were studio. certainly around. Yeah. Well, the studio had a prop store but the chairman of Elstree has told us that they certainly don't have a prop store anymore. And right. although the, although they might have, some of them might have existed in 1971 for the TV stuff, where have they been since then? So they might have survived 10 years and then put into a skip. But I, I'm, I'm firmly, mm. I firmly believe they're sitting in someone's loft somewhere because um, I think some, uh, someone working at the studio wouldn't allow those to go in the script. They'd have taken them home. And I think they're still yeah. waiting to be discovered. Hundred percent could be. Yeah. Someone yeah. would have taken that away. Some... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, time will tell. And then maybe, maybe another pill at this point. If you check your attics, check your check your lofts. <laughs> check yes. Your no, we're not only looking for lost episodes. We're looking <laughs> yeah. for paintings yeah, and a sculpture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think yeah. I think you probably yeah. noticed if you had Aphrodite in a waterhole in your shed. Or in your yeah, I don't think you're going to get that in the loft. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. No, it's a lovely moment, isn't it, when her head goes flying off and on the on the train, though, on isn't the train. it? On the train, yeah. Yes. When he's yeah. he's moving all his stuff, mm. uh, it's just mm. oh, brilliant. On the way to, on the way out to Paris, and of course you you've got a, a few lovely bits like Irene Handel as, as Mrs. Cravat in here. That great ugly thing here. Great ugly thing. That is Aphrodite at the waterhole. What's he doing in here? Get it out of my house! Get it out of my house! It's not doing any harm. It's a work of art. Look, she's beautiful. I did that from memory. That is women as I see them. Oh, you poor man. 
Oh, fancy knocking around with women like that. I wonder what your kids will look like. Uh, according to Galton Simpson, he, he was Tony wasn't a fan of her, her dog that you know, little little thing that she carry around in a handbag virtually and we could just go everywhere with her. But she does a lovely turn of Mrs. Cravat. It's a very different performance than Patricia Hayes, but I don't think Patricia Hayes is would have would have played it in a in the same way. I don't. I yeah. think it works better maybe with Irene. I think she's a, a scene stealer, isn't she? There's no doubt about it. She. Uh... Oh, definitely. And she was in the very first TV series with Hancock's Half Hour, playing yeah. quite a few roles um, throughout yeah. the first series. I think it was. And she was in a Butterfly Gar sketch with him. Was mm. she? I thought that was Totty Truman Taylor. Uh, she was. She was in the first one. Ah, uh, there well, are several exist. of them. No, no, yes, she was in the. Um, I think it was ABC of Television or something was the first one oh. they did, and uh, she was in that. They then did it again later for the Christmas program, and Christmas then again for the stars. Royal Variety. But the first one was Irene Handel. In the Royal Variety, it was Hattie Jokes. Oh right, also oh. it's it was it was an oft repeated sketch. I didn't know they did it quite yeah. so many times. I know he'd done it once yeah. or twice at least. Four times altogether, yeah. And of course the uh the the, the nineteen fifth I think it's nineteen fifty eight Christmas night with the stars one does survive in the in the BBC yeah. archive. Yeah. What a naughty mummy. Been away so long at that naughty naughty wisty drive. Naughty naughty wisty drive. More like the naughty naughty bricklayer's arms. <laughs> Not good enough stuck here all day with nothing to eat. <laughs> Haven't had a decent piece of minute since last Thursday. And I think an audio copy of that was in the um, the Hancock's Half Hour Collectibles that came out a, a few years back. Mm. So definitely worth uh, digging that one out if you could find it. Hancock also did it on tour. Hancock was on tour with Alec Pagonzi and various other people doing his act when he was invited to go on the Royal Variety. And they decided to do the um, Budrigar sketch and so they decided to use the tour as a rehearsal for the uh, Royal Variety. And so they announced to the audience in the theatre that we're changing the second half of the programme and we're going to do this special sketch, which, if it all goes well, will be performed in front of the Queen, which the local people were very proud of, you know, to have this and to see this for the first time. I think that was when Alec Vergonzi was involved and I think that was um, Totty Truman Taylor as well. I think, I think that was her. Yeah, at I think so. As well. Mm. I was going to say the unusual thing about the film is unlike a lot of comedians and, and of course I suppose it's more so with Tony than with, with most but he plays the, the role of, of Tony Hancock again like in the TV yeah. series now you know Norman Wisdom used to play a character called Norman but they're always called Norman Pitkin or something like that Sid would often be you know Sidney Rough Diamond or Sidney Bliss or something like that but, but to go by uh, your own name it, it does closely associate you with your character that bit much more doesn't it oh. and um yeah surprising he didn't take on a name because he took on a different name in the the se- you know not the sequel but in the next film he made which was uh the punch and judy man as uh wally pinner wasn't it yes that's right yeah mm, i think that was yeah. apart from the straight roles that he did a couple of times that was the first yeah. time he played a character other than tony hancock do you think that really affected him that that he was sort of so obviously Tony Hancock the character and Tony Car- Hancock the person? Do you think that ever affected him that he felt like he couldn't really do anything else? Well, people used to get them confused. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You know, yeah, he he couldn't have given it all in to become a plumber, and I think he couldn't have. Much as I think, you know, if if the comedy timing had left him, he could have still been been quite good in in dramatic roles and stuff. And he was in the Government Inspector, but. 
he would have been far too so closely associated with his his comedy work and his comedy character for anyone to to really take him seriously as a as a as a serious dramatic actor. Because Hancock, mm. the character, was always striving to be this great actor. I felt yeah, like he always wanted to move away. You know, the joke, and he was always you know. I think it was the impressionist, wasn't it, when he was off on tour um, doing straight acting. I just wondered if that sort of mir- mirrored his. Uh, Real life. Galton and Simpson, yeah, well, the whole radio show does mirror his life in a way because Galton and Simpson obviously knew him quite well. They'd been working with him for 10 years by the time The Rebel was made and they would feed elements of his character back into the character that they wrote. So although he wasn't quite that Tony Hancock, some of the things he'd say in all seriousness would be then used in jest in the in the radio show and in the scripts that he'd, he'd get. So... Yeah, maybe, you know, there was an element of that about his personality of, you know, I, I can do better, you know, and this and, and that. I, th- I think he um, he thought that actors were treated better than comedians. And uh, mm. I think there's something in the radio show where, where he's... Hello, you know, Big Feet. That, exactly, that's it. When, it, when they say hello, yeah. Big Feet. I never got called sir when I was a comic, not once. It was always, aye, aye, Big Feet, hello, mate. <laughs> I think in reality, he, he was a quite a private man and he, he wasn't... Outside of his character, he wasn't always laugh a minute yeah. sort of chap. And I think people would go up to him, tell him jokes, which he didn't really like, and expect him to be spontaneously funny, which, which he probably and wasn't. And I, I think he thought, mates, yeah, yes, and, and that's exactly what Sid says to him in, in in the episode, doesn't he? He says that they want to be your mates, and he says, "Well, I want to be aloof." Don't you want people to be matey with you? No, I don't. I want respect. I want to be aloof. I, I, I want to be considered above it all, unattainable. And I, I think in, in reality, he probably did have this thing that actors were treated a bit differently than, than comedy stars were. Yeah. Mm. You know, um, Wilfred I. White doesn't let his bitty players call him chalky, does he? Chalky, yeah. Um, kind of thing. <laughs> a wonderful line. Wilfred Hyde White doesn't allow his bit players to go around calling him chalky. <laughs> That's an absolute marvellous line, that is. Yeah, I love uh, that. A great one. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I th- I think people would would confuse the two, and I imagine that that would yeah maybe mm. you know it's hard to tell who can say. Most mm. of the people who could have long long passed away, unfortunately. Even when he did that, um, what's that program called? He did in nineteen sixty with face to face. Yeah, it, um, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say now. So cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was we talking about? <laughs> Uh, confusing the character and the person. Oh, yes. Face what, to what I was going to say yeah. was, when he was doing the face-to-face, didn't John Freeman think his real name was Anthony Aloysius John Hancock? Anthony Aloysius yeah. Sinjin. I can say this slightly unexpected names, Anthony Aloysius <laughs> uh, Any special family reason for that? But they're not true. Those are created by the script. Those are entirely created. Entirely. What is your real name? Then? So yes, e- even, even someone like John Freeman doing a programme like that and peak time uh-huh. thought that was his real name. I mean, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? Yes, obviously, to an, obviously, an embarrassed laugh from Tony. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, that's not yeah. my name. That's invented well, by the writers. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Ray and Alan did manage to get quite a lot of the real Tony mm. into the episodes as mm. uh, alongside the fictional uh, mm. the fictional piece. Yeah, because they, you know, they'd write to his strengths and his character, wouldn't they? Mm. Did they get anything of the real Tony in The Rebel, though? Well, maybe a little bit. It's hard... Hard to say. None of us knew him, but um, oh. I, I think there's there's elements of his pretentiousness, perhaps, and he's wanting to do better and that. 
it's a it's a good little movie and i think it i always find it's it's quite heightened isn't it it's a, it's a very implausible plot in many ways unlike say oh. the plot of the punch and judy man which starts off quite realistic and just becomes implausible right at the very end um, this one starts about you know a third of the way in that it you know daft things start happening and mistakes and that and it, of course they always used to overwrite the stories so uh I think with this, there's only a couple of scenes that were cut from the film, and they may have been filmed, they may not have been. I, I think we've got them from the script, but um, that's about it at the moment. Of that and a couple of photos. Thing is, with the actual script itself, mm. it it does set itself up that it's a very predictable ending. Yeah, um, as oh, it soon definitely as does. The, as soon as the uh, you know the painting the painting's uh, confused with his uh, yeah, as soon as his painting's confused with Paul's then you just know which way the stories are going to go, which is obviously very yeah. funny. Mm. All downhill from there. Yeah, well, not that I wouldn't necessarily downhill. I, I like the way that uh, it's not necessarily a deliberate plot by Hancock to take on someone's work. It all comes about by accident. Although it's an artistic license, it's, it's, sort, it's sort of plausible, isn't it, that, that, you, that you can get into a fix like that by misunderstanding. As It's not as though he set out to deceive anyone. It, it just sort of happened. And, and I think that's quite good. I don't paint hairy birds. <laughs> My dear boy, if I like your paintings, you're made. You've got nothing more to worry about. Hi, this is marvellous. What a beautiful piece of work. Yes, it's not bad. It's not one of my best, of course. But this is quite exceptional. Oh, well, we all have our moments. Because I've made a speciality of painting birds. So it seems. I particularly like the texture of the hair. Yes, I rather like the hair. Those are feathers. I don't paint hairy birds. What are you looking at? Hey, this one. It's superb. How dare you, I don't paint hairy birds. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I feel that whole section could be a little bit tighter by modern standards, perhaps. But it, 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 it works rather well. And his, his character's quite good because his character, you kind of feel for, don't you? Um, he's quite a likeable character in this, really. He's not quite as morose as the Tony Hancock of Railway Cuttings used to be, I think. I, don't, I think there's an element of, you know, you, you don't feel that sorry for him when he's uh, strolling into that gallery with his looking all... Cigarette holder. Uh, his cigarette holder. I was, I was making a gesture of a yeah. cigarette holder then. It doesn't really work on a podcast. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what did I tell you? You're a sensation. Naturally. Uh, is Monsieur satisfied with the arrangement? No, Monsieur is not satisfied with the arrangements. The lighting is atrocious. I've seen better layouts coming up the escalator at Piccadilly Tube Station. Monsieur, I've been supervising exhibitions like this for the past 30 years. In that case, I suggest you turn it in, my good man. Shall we mingle? Yeah, he, he comes over as very, very pompous in that, uh, in, in that section, which is obviously the intention. Oh yes, it's uh, it's great, and of course you've got the wonderful turns by by the the, the few people from like the East Team rep. You've got Oliver Reed in what was only his second film, um, the wonderful George Sanders, who I think rented his Bentley to the production team or something like that. And do, uh, do you know he he only yeah. comes in on the hour? The film has been running mm. an hour before George Sanders is seen, and yep. and he's he's the big Hollywood star in it. It's quite incredible. Yeah. Isn't it? Is that a financial thing, do you think? Yeah, well, it's sort of towards the end of his career, wasn't it? Every time I hear him speak, I can't stop thinking of Shere Khan. Oh, yeah, I suppose so, yeah, because he did the voice. <laughs> you have great talent. The whole of Europe will be at your feet. 
But you must let me try to explain to you how these paintings came to me. Oh, you don't have to tell me. It stands out in every brush mark. Inspiration comes to the painter through torture. Every stroke is torn from the body. Yes, well, that's true, but enough, please let me tell Enough, we have work to do. Yeah, he's uh, great in it, I think, uh, old George Sanders. He's, he's the stuffed-up kind of art critic. It, yeah, it's a, it's a great performance, and you've got some lovely other people, like George, is it George Aslan, who is the... Uh, Greg Ory. My wife is very interested in art, aren't you, my dear? I'm more interested in the artists. I find them very stimulating. I don't mind, as long as they don't find her stimulating. You understand? Mr. Carreras. Plays the uh, Onassis-type character, yeah. That's yeah. it, yeah, very much. Uh... It's brilliant. brilliant. The casting of these parts, I think, is wonderful. Mm. I think uh, Gregory Aslan was superb. Margaret Sard as as the uh, the blonde bombshell or whatever. I mean, mm. uh, I'm not sure what you're allowed to say these days, but she's hugely attractive, um, and she was perfect for that part. Perhaps Mr. Hancock prefers not to paint me. Perhaps he has something else in mind. A sculpture, for instance. Oh, you don't want a sculpture? You want a sculpture? And indeed, uh, Paul Massey was a good-looking lad, wasn't he? For for the yeah. for, for the artist, and he was. Quite a catch too, I think, because he, he hadn't done a lot, I don't think, at that stage, relatively. No, new. no, um, no, yeah, he didn't do. A, I don't think he had a massive career. That's a shock, and Henri. The great friends, really, they just can't agree about art. Yes, well, a little discussion among friends, a very healthy thing, isn't it, really? And then there's Nanette Newman, of course. Some, um, you mm. know. Dennis Price was a big star, like uh, yeah, like Simon. Dennis Price. Obviously, subsequently went to work, on to work with Hancock in the nineteen sixty three series, didn't he? Did he? Right. Yeah, he's right. in one of those. I think he's in the Girl. I think it is. Right. Right. Uh, as a as a doctor, um, mm. and Dennis Price hams it up beautifully, doesn't he? As mm. the uh, art dealer, I think quite uh, not art dealer. I should say artist. Um, Sal- Salvador. Yeah, the Salvador type <laughs> character. <laughs> Oh, well, don't let us get you up. No, it was quite all right. I wasn't very comfortable anyway. I prefer sleeping on soft wood. Oak is so intense, don't you feel? Quite, quite. Especially the knot holes. Quite. Jim Smith? Oh, that surprises you. But I always think that an English name sounds so mysterious, don't you feel? Oh, yes, yes, they do. Yes, I knew Harry Trubshaw and a Bert Higgins weren't so dead mysterious, they were. It's quite a low-budget film, really, for... Doesn't look it... But but for the time that it was made, it wasn't a massive budget. But well, I, I was looking at the budget this week. Big part of that went to old uh, old George Sanders, I think. Well, the bu- the budget for the film was one hundred and seventy five thousand, of which ten thousand went to uh, Sanders. But yeah, in today's money, that's that's four million quid. Oh, but right, you try and make so. a film today for four million quid. I mean, yeah. they're just laughing. It's nothing really, is it? Yeah. I mean, you're probably talking nearer two hundred million for a, a film these days. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of difference between a big modern blockbuster and, and something that went out in the 60s. It's not an Avengers Assembled, certainly. No, but no, uh, but yes, without no. the special effects, with all the location yeah. filming and mm. stuff, yeah, yeah. It, would, uh, it would cost a pretty penny, I should mm. expect. Because mm. I would imagine the bulk of this is done in, in the Elstree Studios. A, a big portion of it was done yes. in a big the portion, studio, yeah. 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 Mm. Did I read somewhere they went to Paris for two weeks, I think, to do some... That's not long, is it, to get it all... Something like that, something mm. like that. Mm. And there's a lovely bit in the commentary on the on the DVD of um, Alan Simpson saying after they, the uh, action painting bit, which took a whole day to film. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> of him on the bike and splashing the paint around with uh, the cow in the background and everything. You want to watch this, Herman Truth? This is what is known in the trade as an action painting. Right. <laughs> Marvellous. Aphrodite at the water hole, on the horizontal. He went out, had a few drinks after they'd finished, you know, wrapped filming for the day, and um, kept this smock covered in paint on, these, and, and slept in it, and then was wearing it or something the next day, and just, you just carried on, didn't, you know, obliviously covered in paint. It's quite a lovely story, I like. I think he stayed over at Alan Simpson's house. Yeah, and people moan about the continuity with Hancock. I mean, there's a good example of uh, excellent <laughs> continuity. Well, very much so, yeah. It's going the yeah. extra mile, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I suppose the thing that's different with this is, of course, you haven't got the audience reaction element, which was always one of Tony's strongest points. Yes, yeah. Um, but it, maybe it allowed him to, to retake things, but I think mm. as has largely been established that the more he would retake something the more you try and perfect it the less spontaneous it is and therefore the less fresh it is each time i don't think it was an issue with this film but i think it, it comes across a, in a different way than the tv series is but then it's a whole different canvas you're painting on with film than television so mm. the thing that sort of stands out to me is is the pace of his delivery i think with the actual hancock south hour episodes you've got a nice rhythm and mm. the storyline's got a natural conclusion maybe it's just because he's done more of those obviously than films but this one is a lot more drawn out it's probably not the right mm. probably not the right phrase for it but you know when he's delivering a line it's not quite the same for me i just just maybe because it's in film and maybe it yeah. just feels a little bit different. there's an element as well of course if i suppose you're, you're filming single camera film which is how everything's made these days television everything except game shows you know, you can take your time with getting a line and getting it right. Whereas with television and with radio, you're getting through it to make sure you keep it on time because it's essentially done as live. So there probably would have been a little bit less time and thought to, to timing, although he was quite good with his spontaneous timing anyway. But yeah, I think as a result, the delivery maybe sometimes is a little bit slower. They've tried a few different things perhaps and, and settled on the one where the pauses seemed about right. I had to get away. I was being stifled. I couldn't get anywhere with my art. No one was interested. Ah, your work was misunderstood. No, they didn't misunderstand it. They just came straight out. They said it was a load of rubbish. I too came over here to seek inspiration. All artists dream of Paris. I hope you won't be disappointed. No, I won't. I shall be able to express myself here. Art to me is more than an expression. It's life itself. He, d- he does seem very natural, though, in my view. He, he, mm. he appears to be comfortable doing the film, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think he does, and I, I think mm. the difference possibly is with with telly, it would have been done in a num a very small number of shoots, probably ten minutes of, of, or even fifteen minutes ago, whereas of course with a, a film, as you say, without the audience there, they can do it in you know two or three minute bursts, mm. um, and I think the timing sometimes where you're only doing it in little snippets like that, the, mm. the, the timing doesn't mm. feel quite the same. And perhaps the intention was that it was a slower pace because it was over, you know, an hour and a half, hour and 35 minutes. Yeah, well, it doesn't feel like three episodes of Hancock's Half Hour tied together. Um, And I watched one of the Step Step to Unsung films recently and and one that I particularly enjoyed. But I was like, this is like three half hour episodes very much tied together. Um, Three three act things where this one... It it flows a little better, perhaps. It doesn't have such a a delineation between the the beginning, middle and end thirds of it. So, 
yeah, it flows quite well, I think, as a story. Yeah, yeah it does flow well as a story. And as uh, I think James said earlier, you sort of know where the ending is going to mm-hmm. and you can laugh along knowing exactly where it's going to end up. And, and that mm-hmm. it, it feels like, a, as you say, a complete story as a whole. Yeah, rather than lots of bits put together so it, it it the continuity on it and how it works as a whole vehicle if you like seems to work really well in, in an right. earlier podcast we was talking about the blood donor and saying mm. how that goes around in a circle yeah. and, and in fact the rebel does exactly the same doesn't it, it does, because doesn't it, it's, it? Yeah. It's, yes it does it starts off with hancock doing the boring job or whatever and and then sometime later then uh, paul is is back in living in with uh, mrs cravat wearing a suit and, and going on the train doing his old job. He's been recognised at last. It's marvellous. I knew he'd do it. Mrs. Cravat, do you realise that you are going to be famous? Anthony Hancock lived here. No! Shall I have a plate on my wall? I must go and see him. Don't be silly. Look at the time. You'll be late for the office. Here's your sandwiches, cheese and tomato. Yes, office. So it all, it all goes round in a big circle. That's a lovely bit. I, I I wonder how much just just for that lovely line of line. I want to fly to London. Well, you'll have to catch a plane, sir. It's a very long way. Oh, <laughs> that's that's that another brilliant section. voice, John. Well done. Yeah, yeah there we go. John, you're wasted. You're wasted. Fancy dress parties just so they can have that joke of him. Yeah. going, I want to catch a plane. <laughs> Your arms are going to get tired, mate. Uh, <laughs> kind of thing. I want to fly to London. It's a long way to London, monsieur. You'd better wait for a plane. <laughs> and, oh, that's just sublime. I, I, Golden Simpson, I think it suggested maybe, you know, Sid could pop up in a in a role or have a cameo, and I think they all agreed that it, it probably wouldn't work because that's not the direction they were going in, but it would have been lovely if Sid could have played that part, I thought. Yeah, yeah. There's a little yeah. nod it, to fans. I think it would have been popular with the British audiences, even if the Americans wouldn't have a clue. But at the same time, maybe with the British audience, they'd be so, a bit miffed that Sid only has a cameo and not a co-starring yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. you can't please so, everyone, can you? Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid not. And then Sid had his own film career. At the time The Rebel was made, they would have known about the, you know, the split, and that would have been sort of front-page news sort of before the film. I expect so, yeah, probably, probably. Mm. I'd like to talk about the existentialist party, because I think mm. that's a, that's a mm. key part of, of the film. And it's a key yeah. part of, of the plot, too. All my friends are existentialists. Yeah, well, it's company for you, isn't it? You'd like them. They appreciate a great talent like yours. And, and I love it when um, the, the fact that they, they all look the same and sound yeah. the same. And I hadn't realised until listening to the Gorton Simpson interview that, you know, that was exactly mirrored what was happening to him back in London when, when he was in the office and everyone was dressed the same doing the same job. So anyway, I just had to leave London. I couldn't stand it any longer. You've no idea how frustrating it is to work with people of no imagination. They all looked alike, they all dressed alike. It was just a uniform. Ah, music. It must have been very soul-destroying to him. Imagine, everybody looking alike. I couldn't leave like that. It's um, a very subtle a very joke. Good point, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, a very, nice little... very subtle that, that had yeah. passed me by for many years. But uh, I loved that mm. scene, and I loved Nanette Newman and that. And uh, I like the uh, I like the poet who who uh, stands up. I like the the Indian fakir. Is that the word? Um, Fakir. Uh, who's yeah. who's standing on his head? Uh, re- and uh, <laughs> yeah. and Hancock goes over and gets down on his sits down on the floor next to him. 
and he does a little aside that's very reminiscent of the early series uh, of Hancock's yeah. Half Hour when with the chance with Alan Simpson. With Alan Simpson, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a it's a lovely little piece. Anyway, this bloke I knew handed my hat when his name was. You probably know him. He was one of your mob. He did all this stuff. He was a black belt, I believe. You comfortable? Mm. I'll get you a drink, but I thought you might pour it up your nose. Anyway, as I was saying, this, this Pandit Mahatma, famous yogurt he was, great friend of the family. One day to prove mind over matter... And I, I think one of the things I like about the film, you've got these various pieces all the way through it. You know, that although there's a continuous story, you've within that story you've got all these little snippets that virtually stand alone and are quite hilarious. It's yeah. interesting uh, sort of transition, really, where you think Hancock feels like he needs to be somewhere else at the start, and then he's not quite at home in the existential party. So yes. where does where does he fit in? Yeah, it sort yeah. of leaves an open question, doesn't it? Really? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it does. It does a bit. Then the characters obviously completely picked from the uh, the poetry society. Oh, they are very much so. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, there's some. Lovely lines like, oh, excuse me, madam. Who are you talking to? Oh, how do you do? Very pleased to make your acquaintance, madam. I beg your pardon? Oh, no, I beg yours. I'm terribly sorry. What a mistake to make. That was a right faux pas, wasn't it? I don't know. <laughs> you know um, or whatever, where someone with long hair, you always... That was a common theme, is a, as a, a nice little quick gag you could stick into a, a, an episode of Hancock's Half Hour. So, I think it's one in... Um, great one in one of the radio episodes where if, uh, go on ask that girl over there what the one with the tartan skirt oh, alright then well any luck no he's got a wife in Glasgow, Glasgow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is brilliant as well there's your girl where standing by the band the one in the tartan skirt just your mark yeah she's a bit better isn't she hang on I'll have a go Oh, well, that's that. No luck? No. He got a wife in Glasgow. <laughs> there were quite a lot of Scottish jokes in Hancock's half hour, weren't there? There, there were, I don't know. Yes, Maybe yeah. one of them had a Scottish relative. Yes, and they, they, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, they just found the idea of kilts amusing. Who knows? Yes, yeah. But, yeah, I think um, the whole existentialist party bit is the oddest scene, I think, in the, in mm. the, in the film. It, mm. it's a, I don't know if that follows the flow of it a bit, but it, it, it all... Yeah, it just all really works quite well, doesn't it? And, and then later on, you've got the fancy dress party uh, on board mm. the, the yacht in, in the south of France. So, hang on. It's no good. This dance is no good for a man of my build. I'm a Charleston man, really. Let's go and sit down. And that's another party that sort of works, but it's quite hard to do, I should think, from a direction yeah. point of view. From a, from a, um, a, a, yeah, a coordination mm. point yeah. of view yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and the costumes were excellent in that, weren't they? Very good. They were very good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but and as well choreographed as well. The dance routines yeah. work yeah. well. Yes. Yeah. Well, they they would have been choreographed. I don't think Tony had very much two left feet, so they they would mm-hmm. get someone in on the TV shows and on this film to show him roughly how to mm-hmm. dance, and then you know try to. Well, make when it he did that dancing scene on the on the TV episode of Hancock's Half Hour, I always remember thinking, "Crikey, he does that quite well." Um, and obviously he was choreographed for that. I mean, Sid Sid was dancing in the same episode, but he was a dancer. But um, Hancock, I guess that when Hancock was young, I think it was quite normal for, for young men to have the ability to glide around the dance floor, didn't it? Well, you didn't have Netflix back in those days and the, and the bars were open, so, you know. Indeed. 
But yeah, he looks quite a natural in as in the, the ladies' man, isn't it? In the yeah, TV yeah. episode, he looks yeah. quite a natural in that. Yeah, he does. Well, they yeah. did have someone come in uh, to to teach them a bit of ballroom dancing, both mm. of them, so they they'd be able to to do the bit required mm. for the show. You've got to have a bit of rhythm to start off with, though. I think, haven't you? You've got to have something there. Probably. More, so more they me. tell me. I've, I've so got they more tell than us. two left feet. Oh. I've got three left feet. So uh, yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. know what that says about me. Probably yeah. a lot. I mean, I think we're quite lucky because in my generation, when I used to go out to a dance hall years ago, all I had to do was stand on the dance floor and shake my legs and shake my arms, and that was quite acceptable, you know. But uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't have to worry about one, two, three, one, two, three, and all that. Oh, I'm far too uncoordinated to even be able to, to do the shaking about <laughs> all the hokey cokey. There's some lovely lines as well in there, isn't there? Like in the co- coffee bar. So I want a co- frothy coffee with no froth. And Mario Fabrizi and Liz Fraser's little uh, cameo parts as well. We don't do tea, only coffee. Espresso or cappuccino. Oh, all right, I love a white woman, no froth. No froth? I don't like froth. And a cappuccino, no froth. No froth? That's right, no froth. And that marvellous, eh? 800 quid's worth of frothing machinery here and you don't want that. Otherwise, what you come in here for if you don't want any froth? You can get an ordinary cup of coffee anywhere. Yeah, it's it's quite a cosy film. You feel mm. like he, he that coffee shop thing is another thing that there's a theme right through Hancock's half hour. You you've got the yeah. art thing which we've been talking about, but the coffee shop pops up. I want my bog standard builder's tea or my bog standard coffee. Or from Fred's pie store, <laughs> wet and warm and vaguely brown. Yeah, but yeah, the coffee, the coffee, uh, sort of the coffee bar revolution of the fifties featured mm. really heavily in in Hancock's yeah. half hour and the the great um, episode, the radio episode, the espresso bar, where he mm. sets up oh, that's a. Great. Uh, a, a coffee bar with with a sewer running through the middle and yes yeah, so it's quite awful isn't it yeah but, but i think at the time i think at the time people were setting up coffee bars and so yep. the more the more grotty they were yep. The, yep. The, the more appealing it was the more trendy they were you know the more trendy yeah. it was yeah yeah so mm. it was a real theme that um, mm. i think ray and alan when you look back ray and alan reflected the um the, the sort of the the trends of the day back to the audience that was that was listening yes yeah 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 yeah, I love the um, the the coffee bar and uh, Mario when being told you can't have any froth. He says, "What? No froth? Ah, it's not the same. Now, one cappuccino, no froth. There's no froth on it. Here's your bill. I don't know. No froth. I spent eight hundred quid on this equipment, and he wants no froth. <laughs> it's a lot of money because coffee machines are still about that price now. I can't remember if that's the right amount, but it was a lot of money for 1961. Mm. I should imagine, yeah. So I guess, should we go over a review of the episode? Should we start with you, James? Would you like to give us your thoughts? Yeah, I think I did I did enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it as, as much as I do the episodes, probably because I could just dip in and out of those episodes whenever I want, but time is a bit of a premium for me with children. Mm. So trying to watch a film and actually yes. getting some use of the TV is... It is... I do enjoy it. It lifts a hell of a lot from the uh, the radio episodes, and I'd say that with a film and a bigger budget comes probably a lot more rehearsals, a lot more practice. And my personal opinion, I feel it takes off some of the delivery. I would I would love to have heard him read these scripts and sort of practice it for the first time to hear what his take would have been on the on some of the lines. I don't feel it felt very very polished, but I did mm. enjoy it. So I'd probably say. A solid seven out of ten. Yeah. A generous seven, probably. Generous seven. Mm. See, I was, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking I'd probably say overall 
it's a great movie. There's some lovely visual stuff in there, like the moment where he throws the hat and the brolly off of the ferry. You represent 14 years of sheer misery. And this. I hate you and every single thing you stand for, and I shan't need you anymore. And then immediately the next scene, it cuts down to pouring it down with rain. He's like, oh, well, I had my ticket in the hat, and actually I threw that over with the brolly. And, and your ticket for Paris, monsieur? Yes, that's what I want to explain. You see, actually, I, I had a bowler hat. I put the ticket in behind the band. And stupidly enough, I threw it away with the umbrella. So I haven't actually got it now. Which really made me laugh when I saw it in the cinema. I hadn't noticed how funny that scene was until I saw it on a big screen. And that, that does make a big difference. I think seeing it with an audience is much, much more enjoyable than just watching it on your home, uh, on your own in the, in the morning. Uh... The place was rocking, wasn't it, when, when we went to that, John? Oh, yeah, yeah. It yeah, really was. Paul Merton introduced oh, it. We that. had a big yeah. group of people. It was lovely to get the, to hear the, the laughter and enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking to Alan Simpson, one of the writers, and I pointed out to him that the Rebel, the copy I had on DVD, the colours were quite faded. Um, it didn't look the way it should do. And he looked at it and said, yes, I agree, you're right. So I spoke to Tessa, their manager, who then spoke to Network, who have done a brilliant restoration job on this. Uh, it really is stunning. Uh, it was scanned from the original 35mm negative, which means it's the best possible picture quality you can get. Restored to high definition in the original widescreen to the actual aspect ratio. The restoration used a combination of automated, pro automated processes and, and laborious, laborious, <laughs> and laborious manual work to remove film, dirt and damages. They've also corrected instability caused by film warping and corrected dark and faded colours. I'm so excited, I can hardly breathe, really. I've, I've Maybe I'd feel differently about it if I had actually been there to see it on a big screen. Like I say, watching yeah. it at five o'clock in the morning uh, yeah. is not as <laughs> not, fun. Not the most conducive. I did not study art, I studied life. And do you prefer a brush or a palette knife? It depends whether I'm painting or eating an apple. And uh, <laughs> how do you mix your paint? In a bucket with a big stick. <laughs> but yeah, I think a solid eight's good because of the visual stuff. It is, as you say, a little bit more polished and therefore you feel like it's maybe there's a little bit less of the oomph of, of Tony in there. But it, it's bloody good fun. It's the best we'll ever see in terms of picture quality of Tony compared to the TV shows and things um, until the next one gets a Blu-ray release. I, I think we should be orders or orders, I suppose, because most of the others are out on Blu-ray. So, yeah. A, a good episode, a, a, a good episode, a good film, and uh, very much worth watching. A podcast or two ago, we looked at the blood donor, and I think I, when we was rating that, I said the thing about the blood donor was three things: it was Hancock's performance, the supporting cast, and the script. And to me, they were all perfect. And I think looking at the Rebel, it's got a lot of similarities in that respect because I think Hancock's performance is great. I think he looks relaxed doing a film. I mean, obviously, you don't see all the outtakes and, and the, the takes that weren't uh, in the final edit. Um, and I think, to some extent, he probably did thrash it to death. But uh, that's that's what you can do with films, so I, I don't blame him for that. I think the supporting cast, I think the casting director, I think, was a genius in, in getting those people to do it. And I love the fact that you've got Tony's mates there as well to give him a bit of support and uh, to give it a bit of a boost for us people in, in the British audience. So that combination of sort of film stars and, and Hancock's mates, I, I think works perfectly. And I think Galton Simpson's script, for the first script, film script, for a young couple of writers like that, 
I think it's brilliant. I think it, it, it takes Hancock in a new direction. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's laugh out loud quite a lot the way through. And it was all done, as we said earlier, on, on a relatively uh, small budget, although I'm not sure how that compared to other films at the time. It was probably par for the course, I should think. But I think um, scoring-wise, it's again, it's a bit difficult because it doesn't compare to sort of modern-day films. But I think if you're comparing it with the sort of films of that generation and you look at you know the carry-ons and Norman Wisdom and that sort of thing that was coming out, um, I, I think it, it stands up very well. I, I, would, I would give it a solid eight. And I think it, I just think, you know, the fact that America didn't like it is America's loss, quite frankly. Um, I think yeah, it's, uh, agreed. And, but I also think I like, I certainly like it more now than I did years ago. I enjoy it more now. Um, I don't know whether it's because I'm older and wiser, but um, I think it's, uh, I think it stands the test of time. And uh, when you, you know, it's been on TV a few times recently on Talking Pictures television. And I think it makes a, uh, you know, a good couple of hours entertainment uh, on on any evening. Yeah, and I, I think for me, I'm going to beat all of you with the score because I'm going to go for a nine. I, I, <laughs> it's a, I, I really enjoy it as a film. Yeah. Um, and since Network did the fantastic restoration work and the the colours that are restored to it now, um, make yeah. it even more enjoyable. But as you say, the the, the casting. The, the script, which is in the same way as the blood donor, as you say, has a, a complete circle, uh, is, is brilliant. But also I think we're so used to seeing Tony in black and white because yeah. nearly everything we have of Tony is in black and white. I think the only other thing we have in colour is his very brief cameo appearance in Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines and, of course, the... Um, uh, sorry, the wrong box and the three episodes of the Australian yeah, series. Down Under. Australia Down Under series and the colour on those aren't great so this is a you know it's rare to be able to see Tony in colour and I and in HD now and in HD indeed I'm not one of those that advocates um, colourising the old episodes because that doesn't feel right to me personally but seeing these uh, seeing the colour and and that it it really adds to um, adds to the enjoyment of it so yeah nine for me excellent it's got your stamp of approval there then Martin certainly has thoroughly enjoy it excellent so yeah not a bad uh, collection of scores there i think the the average is probably uh, probably an eight there isn't it out of eight and a half probably give or take but uh, yeah it's a it's a great movie and we highly recommend you buy the blu-ray and if you're you're particularly lucky uh, i don't think the uh, the booklets are still uh, in the blu-ray but when the blu-ray came out it had the script of the day off the aborted sequel that golden sims are going to write to this film and the first, however many copies, I don't know if, if they've sold them all out, but had a, a little booklet of the whole script. Oh, I got that with the DVD. I haven't got the Blu-ray, but I've got it with the DVD. Mine came with the DVD. Blu-ray, all the first mm. Blu-rays and DVDs that were sold. Mm. Mm. And I think it's worth just mentioning for, for listeners that The Day Off was the script that Ray and Alan wrote for Tony to be the sequel to The Rebel and I think they wrote two other partial scripts to go with this one. Yeah, one was like about three brothers or something, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. But Tony didn't uh, didn't like them, felt it wasn't international enough. So um, obviously, then party company with Ray and Allen and uh, Steptoe followed for for Ray and Allen and Punch and Judy Man for for Tony. I mean, this is the 60th anniversary of uh, of the Rebel, so it's uh, yes, we have uh, actually an, an mentioned an, that. <laughs> it's a, it's <laughs> an anniversary an anniversary year this year for the rebel and 
just as importantly, um, we have an anniversary for the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society, which is 45 years old this year. Founded in 1976. It's founded in 1976. And I think uh, we have in our archive a letter to one of our original members signed by the chairman at the time, Stephen Ratcliffe. And the membership cost at the time was 50p per annum. So a 50p membership fee back in 1976. Um, it's gone yeah. up a bit, isn't it? It's gone up. It's inflation for you. <laughs> you know? Just a little bit. Just a little. But back in 1976, we didn't have a proper magazine. so um, I didn't have a so, podcast either. And we well, definitely didn't have a podcast. Have a podcast. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so um, special magazine out in July. Why not join the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society today? You can find us at tonyhancock.org.uk for all the information you need on how to join. For just £13 a year, you'll have access to the members area of our website and receive four magazines a year by email, packed with information on Tony, his shows, archived material and much, much more. Or you can have printed copies delivered to your door for just £16 in the UK or £26 worldwide. Members also get a digital-only bonus pages supplement. And as you may have heard earlier in the podcast, it's our 45th anniversary, so please do join. We've reunion events planned for later in the year, and we're having regular virtual events online via Zoom. Coming in the next episode, TV, the 1950s revolution. We will look at Hancock's half hours inspired by what was then the new medium of television, the TV set, the impersonator, and the set that failed. Check our social media accounts for the release date, or go to the news section of tonyhancock.org.uk. And you can find us wherever you usually get your podcasts. Please rate, review and subscribe for forthcoming episodes. If you have any comments or stories or just generally want to get in touch, our email address is hancockshalfhourpodcast at gmail.com. Keep an eye on our Twitter accounts for the latest news on the podcast. Just search on Twitter for East Team Lad, Tony Hancock or Nearly an Armful. Well, that's about it until next week, chaps. So uh, it's Toodle Pip from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And this is GLK London signing off for a quick cough and a drag. Blimey, your, your ears must be like a couple of uh, braised lamb cutlets under those headphones, Tim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got it wrong last week and I said uh, globe artichokes. Sorry. Globe right. artichokes. So I, that's, that's I had to look up the quote. <laughs> <laughs> this has been an official podcast of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Unfortunately, it was not written by Alan Simpson and Ray Gordon, whoever they are. The announcer was me, Robin Sebastian, currently appearing in the saloon bar of the Hand and Racket.